I'm sure you've heard things before come from the mouths of sincere saints who say things like, don't confuse me with all that doctrine. I just want to see Jesus. I, I don't really care about all that doctrine. Here's, I learned everything I needed to learn when I was a child. Jesus loves me, this I know. Is that a true statement? It is a true statement if we are in Christ. But is that the fullness of that statement? It's the end result. Now, we need to understand that when we are giving the gospel to people, we are, we are telling, them about, telling them about the reason for the hope that lies within us, that they do not have to understand some of the language that we just sang. Isn't it great to sing songs with the words like propitiation and wrath of God in them? You should say yes, because that's biblical language. Because when we take our focus off of the depth of the gospel, those are words we don't want to use because we don't understand them. You know that there was a liberal denomination that when they were doing their, their hymnal, they wanted to use in Christ alone, but they wrote the Gettys and asked them if they could take out that phrase, that pesky little phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied. And you know what Keith and Kristen Getty said? No. <laughs> It's their song, they wrote it, and it's biblical, and without that, you have no gospel. So we need to understand that when people come to Christ, they need to understand basic truths. Basic truths. They are sinners, separated from God, heading to judgment, and there's nothing they can do about it on their own, because they're unrighteous, they're an enemy of God but that we serve a God who sent his son who came to earth as fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death um, was on a cross, was risen again, and now seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's only through repentance of sin, turning away from sin, and turning to this one, this Jesus who accomplished that work. That's the only way we escape judgment because on the cross, he died in our place and the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what they need to understand. And yet that is the beginning of a life of discovery, is it not? It's the beginning of a life of discovery of the depth of what Christ did on the cross and what God intends and how God from Genesis to the maps is pursuing a people for himself. And so that begins the journey. So for one to stay in the, the state of saying, I don't need all that doctrine. Well, guess what the Bible's full of? Doctrine. You don't know that Jesus loves me if you don't understand doctrine because you haven't read the word to find that out. If you've read the word, then guess what you've entertained? Doctrine. So we want to be sure that we present a clear gospel and that people understand the truth that it requires to be saved, and that that begins this life of being taught the things that Jesus said. That's what the Great Commission says, right? We are to teach them all things that Christ has commanded. That's a never-ending process. Well, thankfully, Isaiah 52 to the end of Isaiah, into Isaiah 53 is such a rich, doctrinal text of scripture that gives us a much fuller understanding. It's not the only text, but it is a clear text. 
It is a clear text instructing us what the Bible says about Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now, we've been in this text from Isaiah that was just read. Mike read it for us, beginning in Isaiah 52, 13, all the way to the end of 53. This is the fifth week we've been in it because we wanted to feel the weight of the text. Each verse or each stanza of this song reflects a different nature of what God has done in Christ and what he, is, what he has instructed us. And the New Testament supports it all, and we've gone and looked at the New Testament in the first four stanzas. Well, this last stanza, one writer says, this is the reservoir, reservoir into which all the lines of thought from the first four stanzas flows. And I think that's a great way to understand this rich text of verses 10, 11, and 12 of Isaiah, of Isaiah 53. I've introduced to you this morning our Dig and Discover principles, and under the, the principle of biblical theology, I want to read to you what it says. We may think about the Bible as a map, and on that map, we see that all roads in the Old Testament lead to Christ. Not all roads are main highways, but the main highways are those passages from which a direct connection to Christ can be clearly seen. But all of the smaller roads, side streets, and alleys eventually connect to the main highways. We may be studying a passage that is on a side road. The important question to ask is, how does this passage get me to the main highway? Or how does this passage connect with the main theme or passage that points me toward Christ? Now, that's a, a very helpful way to look at Old Testament passages specifically. And I would say <clears throat> that Isaiah, in his fourth servant song, is a bit of both. It's a side road, but it's also the main highway. Because nowhere in Isaiah, 50, in this fourth servant song, 52, um, 13 to 53, 12, nowhere do we read, and this is about Jesus, do we? But we know it's about Jesus. Isaiah's prepared us for that, especially since chapter 40. He's prepared us to get to this fourth servant song. Also, understanding how the New Testament looks at Isaiah 53 tells us this is also part of that main highway. So looking at the Old Testament through the eyes of the New shows us that this is clearly for us speaking about Jesus. These last three verses, which we're going to stand in a moment and, and, and read them again, these last three verses are in some ways a summary of everything that we've learned in this fourth servant song, and other ways a fuller description of what has happened. Some things we've had hinted at, and now we're going to have smack us right in the face. Other things are repetition, but this is where it all leads to. This is one of the passages that we can look at passages like um, Acts chapter 15, those first several verses, and it talks about this very simple description of the life of Christ and the gospel, and it says, as it was written in the Old Testament, or as, this, as it was written in the scriptures. This is one of those passages that, yes, everything about it, including the resurrection, is found in our passage. So when Paul writes about the gospel, when Luke writes in Acts that all of these things um, are written in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 can be held up as exhibit one as we understand the gospel. Well, my goal this morning is just to whet your appetite for what we're about to see. There are some passages of scripture that I feel unworthy to even open in front of you. They're so weighty, 
They're so glorious. They, they paint a picture of God and his work in Christ in such a way that my knees knock to be able to open it up for us. So I want you with me this morning to have your heart and mind open to things that may be hard for you, but ultimately are the most glorious truths that you can find in Scripture. Let's stand as we read. I know Mike just read them, but I want them fresh in your ears, beginning in verse 10. Verse 10 in the ESV starts with yet. So we need to look at verse 9 to remind us. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will or the pleasure of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. I walked out of my house this morning without my outline. So I'm going to turn my back to you. I'm not being disrespectful, but I don't have this memorized. I just want to remind us where we've come. In that first, um, we're finding four, this is the fourth servant song, and we're finding five verses or five stanzas describing the servant's suffering. In the first stanza, 52, 13 through 15, we learn that the servant shall be high, lifted up, and exalted as a result of his suffering to cleanse many. Now remember, we said that that was the beginning. We started up high, right? We started with exaltation, and then we immediately found why the exaltation was there. Now in this fifth stanza, we're coming back to that idea of exaltation from the suffering that we learned about earlier. In the second stanza, the first three verses of chapter 53, the servant was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and despised and rejected by men. So see this connection. Go back for me one more. You're doing well to keep up with me. But, um, so the servant is high and lifted up as a result of his suffering. And then we learn about his suffering. He was acquainted with grief and despised and rejected by men. There you go ahead. In the third stanza, verses four through six, the servant suffered in our place, was crushed for our sins and bore our iniquity. So we're just, as what you saw, we just read, we're coming back to those ideas with more clarity, right? So this servant song, remember, kind of bookends with exaltation and then goes in with the second and the fourth stanza, um, mimicking one another with some of the same truths, with the third stanza being right in the center with the most profound truths that the servant suffered in our place 
In the fourth stanza, the servant willingly suffered as a lamb led to slaughter, though he was innocent. So not only did the father do this, but he willingly submitted to it. So it was a willing um, offering of his own life. And now today we come to the fifth stanza. The servant will suffer and prosper according to Yahweh's will, and many will be accounted as righteous because he was numbered with transgressors. So that's where we're heading. And you can see how some of those truths that were earlier in this servant song are, are brought to us again and some of that with more powerful clarity. So look at your text. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet, we've already put that in context when, when I read for us, because that, that he had done no violence, no sin, there was no deceit in his mouth. That's a way to say he never thought anything that was sinful. He didn't act any way that, sin, that was sinful. Yet, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. The will of Yahweh. Now, it, that's a true translation, but it doesn't carry the weight of the word. There is the idea of pleasure in this word. I mean, just think about this. If God is perfectly sovereign and everything he does is good, and everything he does is according to his own good pleasure, then everything his, he does, he does for his pleasure, and that is defined as his will. So this idea carries the idea, car this word carries more than the idea that it was the will of the Lord. Because we could be left to think, well, the will of the Lord, he may, he may have done that, but he didn't really want to do it. But it was his will, so it was done. But the word is so much more pregnant than that. It means it's his pleasure. It is his pleasure. Let me show you why we know this. Keep your finger here. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And no, I'm not going to preach it because there are five sermons in there too. So <laughs> I just want to draw your, your attention to the will of God. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 to 14, one long sentence in the Greek, so full of, of rich theology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his pleasure. pleasure. Some versions have will, some versions have. You see, it's, it's his good pleasure. Why? Because he did it. If he did it, it is righteous and it is good and he does it from his pleasure because everything he does is pleases him. Everything. Because it's perfection. Verse 6, not only to the purpose of his will, but to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, let me just stop here. I said I wasn't going to preach it, I'm not, but I, will, I still want to equip, right? When somebody says to you, well, why did God choose me and not someone else? The only place you can go to scripture that I know of is right here. He did it according to his good pleasure, to the kind intention of his will to bring him glory. That's it. It has nothing to do with us. There's a biblical answer. Most times people say, well, I don't know. That's just the way God does it. Well, no, this tells us. It's to the praise of the glory of his own grace. And since he does everything perfect, that was his good pleasure to accomplish. 
Look at verse 8. This grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us what? The mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, the word is used the same way there. This is God's good pleasure. Did he intend it? Yes. Was it good and righteous? Yes. Could anything thwart it? Never because it was his will. All of this idea is carried back in Isaiah 53. If you're not back there, turn back there. And we're gonna return to these thoughts in Ephesians 1, but I wanted you to see this very early on. It was the pleasure of the Lord. It was his good pleasure, his good desire, his good will. And we see it all through scripture. This, this, all through the Old Testament, this word is used to talk about desire. Um, human desire, a husband for his wife, things God desires, which he's already said, if God desired, desires it, it is good. But we also use it to, to paint the picture that God does whatever he desires to do. Like in Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. That's the same word, his pleasure. Now, at first, if this is the first time we've ever heard this, that is shocking, is it not? Because of what follows it. It was the good pleasure of the Lord to save people. No, it was the good pleasure of the Lord to crush his servant, the one who had no sin. That, that's shocking to us. This is why it causes liberal scholars to come up with alternate ways to try to express the atonement, that it could not be such cosmic child abuse as the father crushing the son. What kind of father would kill his son so other people could live? The holy father who it pleased him to do so so he could redeem a people for himself. This is a rich word that we cannot skip over. I, I'm not saying the ESV translated it wrong. I just wish they translated it differently because it has to do with his pleasure in doing so. And this is not a happy, happy, joy, joy pleasure. It is the pleasure of knowing that it's righteous because his ultimate intent was to do what? Save the unrighteous. And if he's going to save the unrighteous, he has to do something about their unrighteousness or they would never be saved. So his good pleasure is leading to a result, and that's what's in view in this verse. Yet it was the will, the sovereign pleasure of Yahweh to crush him. We've already seen this word earlier on. We've seen this word earlier in this very same text, and we learned there, and it has the same meaning here, to obliterate, just to crush into an unimaginable number of pieces. This is, this is not just a little bit of suffering. This is suffering unto death. That's the language throughout Isaiah in this fourth servant song. It's the language that's here as well. It's the will of Yahweh, the desire, the pleasure of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now remember, we've seen that word early as well in, in verse three. And we've seen that the grief is not just, well, I didn't get to watch the movie I wanted to watch and I'm grieved over that. The grief is suffering. 
That's what the whole song is about, amen? It's about the suffering of the servant. And now we're going to learn how they're tied together. We've, it's been alluded to us that they're tied together, but this section of the song tells us exactly how and why that suffering is tied together to the pleasure of God and the purposes of God in Christ. The third line of verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, and I think this is better when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. It's, it's more in the reflexive where he has done this. It is, it is the servant who has done this. And when we see his soul, we're talking about his life. We're not just talking about, well, it was only part of him. This is the whole thing. Everything about him. This is that comprehensive way of talking about someone's life. When he makes his soul an offering for guilt, now that should stop us right away as well, shouldn't it? An offering for guilt. Where, where does our mind go when we think about an offering for guilt? Goes to the offering, the guilt offering in Leviticus, right? Turn there, keep your finger in Isaiah, turn to Leviticus, turn to Leviticus chapter 5. Your Bible, for some of you, should just open up there, by the way. <laughs> and just a, a, an aside on this. I listened to somebody um, this week preach on this text, somebody I've mentioned before, a friend, Brian Borgman, who spent six or seven years in Isaiah. And in this sermon on this text that he did in 2002 or three, he said, I began to wonder how, where we were a year ago. And for that church a year ago, in the end of Isaiah 53, guess where they were? Isaiah 45. At least we were in 18 and 19, or 19 and 20. One year ago this week, we were in Isaiah 19 and 20. So even though we're going slow, we're not as slow as Brian is going through the text. So. And I'm not mocking Brian. If I have a chance to listen to somebody preach um, in Isaiah, I listen to Brian Borgman. So it's no knock on him at all. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. We're in these different offerings that the Old Testament, that God gave his people, that they needed to participate in in order to be in his presence. Yahweh spoke, beginning in 14, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of Yahweh, he shall bring to Yahweh as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven." If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he had un made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred, incurred guilt before Yahweh. Now I want you to notice one thing specifically about that offering. It's an in-kind offering, isn't it? It's according to the sin. 
So what we see, turn back to Isaiah 53, what we see in Isaiah 53 where the servant offers his life as a guilt offering, it, it, it is an offering that is sufficient for what the, what the father intends to do. It's in kind. And this is the offering that he willingly gives of himself. Now, I'm not going to all the New Testament passages yet that you might be thinking of. We want to see this in its context. Remember, we're being, we're being given this, this servant song to primarily in view with those people who are about to be freed from captivity in Babylon. And so they're being, being freed physically. But remember, we were told that even though they're being freed physically, there's no peace for the wicked. wicked. So there still has to be something done in order for them to be delivered from their sinfulness. And that's where this culminates here. It culminates right here in the fourth servant song. What will Yahweh do? Because they can walk around in freedom in the land all they want, but if they're still an enemy of God, nothing has been accomplished eternally. So that's where this, is, this has been leading us. And Isaiah 53 is that culmination. And we're learning the specifics about this now. So his soul, he makes his soul an offering for guilt, a, a sufficient offering for everything that God intends to accomplish. He shall see, the fourth line, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Three blessings that are there, right? To the servant, three blessings that are there. The first one, he shall see his offspring. What a wonderful thing. What, what were the people earlier? We have all strayed like sheep. We've all gone our own way. So we go out straying like sheep. We come back as children. Now, I'm not the only one to say that. You can pick up 10 commentaries and probably read it in eight of them. But it's a true statement right here from Isaiah 53, isn't it? We wander like sheep, but because of the work of the Father through the servant, we are welcomed back like children. It's right there in the text, isn't it? He shall see his offspring, his seed. This is that nod to that Abrahamic covenant, is it not? Where Abraham has promised that he and his seed will be a blessing to the world and all of the things incumbent in that Abrahamic covenant. Well, then we learn in Galatians 3 that who is that singular seed but Jesus himself, the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And in that, in that context of Galatians 3, we learn that the one seed, Jesus, is the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, and then everybody who is united with him, all of us who are united to that servant, Jesus Christ, by faith, are true children of Abraham, and we receive all the Abrahamic blessings. That's all nodded to right here, because... He, because the Lord crushed him, because he offered his life as an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's the first blessing. The second blessing is he shall prolong his days. Now think about that. In Isaiah 53, up till verse 10, where's the servant? He's dead, right? Crushed, no life in him. And remember, Isaiah 53 kind of looks at all of this from the standpoint of first century. We didn't esteem him. We esteemed him not. We had no idea that he was being offered as a substitute for us. We had no idea that we esteemed him not. We didn't understand what the Lord was doing. So at this point, the servant is crushed. And so this, even though it doesn't tell us he's resurrected, what has to happen if we have a dead servant who has prolonged days? He's alive again. Hallelujah. 
because this term is always used for people who are, who, who are living. The, their days are prolonged. It's never used to someone who's dead. How can you have prolonged days if you're kissing dirt? So this, is, this presumes a miracle, right? This presumes this miracle of resurrection because the blessings of his work, he shall see his offspring. The servant shall see those, and we'll, we'll learn more about that in a moment. He shall prolong his days. So in other words, the grave did not hold him, hallelujah. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. So you see how this verse begins and ends with the will of Yahweh? Now we learn in our hermeneutics and our understanding of scripture as we're understanding what scripture is saying that if a section begins and ends with the same thought, bookends, it must be an important thought. That's what verse 10 is. It was the will of the Lord, the will of Yahweh to crush him and the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Now look back at verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, this is where we started. My servant shall act wisely. Then we see the results. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. But we learn that this word acting wisely had to do with, with acting wisely or prudently so that it guarantees the success of what one is trying to accomplish. Remember that? Learning that? So if this is the way the servant acts and it's the will of the Lord to accomplish something, and that will of the Lord is to crush him, and it has a purpose, which we have already seen, we're gonna see clearer here, we start to see it when we know that he is seeing his offspring. Now we're talking about spiritual offspring there, right? That was clear, yes, spiritual offspring. This is the, the difference in the two natures of that Abrahamic covenant, that there was one that is representing the law and one that is representing the new covenant and that they, one is physical and one is spiritual. And I don't have time to go into all of that, but this is the spiritual side of that, um, being promised that the spiritual children of the servant, they are getting benefits from the work of the servant because it was the will of the Lord the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Well, first of all, the will of Yahweh is to crush, was to crush him, but there was a purpose behind that, and that was to bring many sons to glory, yeah. right? We'll see that in a moment from Hebrews chapter two, where we start tying all of this up. So the purpose, that will prosper. In other words, God will not be thwarted. All that the Father gives the Son, the Son will keep. He will not lose one, because this was the intention of the Father and the work of the Son. We'll look at verse 11. The Hebrew throughout a lot of Isaiah is confusing. And I've told you before that when 10 scholars are confused and come up with 10 different ways, I feel okay being a little bit confused. But I think even the different translations that we have in our laps this morning all lead us to the same place. So my goal here is not to give you a Hebrew lesson. My goal is to help you understand the meaning of verse 11. You with me? Because if I'm giving you a Hebrew lesson, you're in some serious trouble. <laughs> out of the anguish, the ESV, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So we look at that and we're like, what on earth is being said here? I get this. It's the same thing that's being, that's being said. There's going to be justification because of the work of the servant, right? This, uh, 
make many to be accounted righteous, that's another way of saying we'll be justified in our theological language, that legally, forensically, we stand before God not guilty as if we'd never sinned, even though we had. And we'll come into that a little bit more. But let's look at the beginning of this. I would suggest to you that the way to understand this, and this may be more what your version has depending on what versions you have in your lap, because of the anguish of the servant's soul, okay, you can see that out of that consideration, but because of the anguish of the servant's soul, he shall see, now some of your versions may have um, see the light, so that there are a couple of versions, the, the Septuagint, the, you're familiar with that, the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament, and also the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of those scrolls that were found, um, they have light in there. Now, I don't know if it belongs or not, but if it does, doesn't it just give us more understanding that we're talking about a resurrected servant here? Uh, I'm not sure that it belongs there, but it wouldn't hurt the truth of the text if it does belong there and if your version has it. Let me start that again. Because of the anguish of the servant's soul, he shall see and by his knowledge of his suffering and its results, I'm going to put in there, that's what he has knowledge of. When he sees that, he will be satisfied. And then literally, he will justify, or as the ESV says, make to be uh, accounted righteous. He will justify a righteous one, my servant, many. That's what's literally there. So I think what we're seeing here is the idea that what Isaiah wants us to see is that the servant, after he looks and sees the results of the father's will and sees it prospering in his hand, making many sons come to glory, sees it prospering in his hand, then at that point, he's satisfied in what he sees. And he knows then that his work on the cross as the servant will justify many. Does that make sense? That's what it's trying to convey to us, I believe. And it flows right in, in the way that Isaiah 53 flows. So he, he is seeing, and, and so you're seeing that I'm putting by his knowledge in a different place. Now, some people would say that by his knowledge has to do with how you unite yourself to that servant's work. You have to have true knowledge of the servant. Well, that's true as well, is it not? If it says it, it matches with scripture. If it doesn't say it, scripture still says it. The only way that we are going to be in Christ is to spiritually know him, to repent of our sins and turn to him for everything we need for life and godliness and give up our own life. It's a knowledge of Jesus. And it's a true spiritual knowledge that is a love for him that grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. So it's true as well that that is needed. But the key here is to understand this is what the servant will see as he contemplates his work. He is satisfied in that. And isn't that wonderful that he's satisfied because what is the father? The father's satisfied as well with the work of the son to stand in our place. Otherwise, the wrath of God would still come on us. The wrath of God is satisfied in the servant. Make many to be accounted righteous. We're going to spend some time with many in just a moment. But to be accounted righteous. Notice what this does not say. This verse we could put, if you had all of history, this is the verse that you could put between the Catholics and the Protestants. Right? We are accounted righteous. Not 
made righteous. We just sang many verses about this, didn't we? Isn't that a wonderful text? The text that we sang, um, I'm forgetting the name of it now. I know the name, but I'm forgetting it. Uh, his robes for mine. Isn't that a wonderful text? That is, that is just dripping with the love of God toward his people. And we see our sin, both where we were before Christ and where we are after Christ. So this idea that we're accounted righteousness, righteous, as, as, as one of the reformers said, it's an alien righteousness, right? It is not ours. It is Christ's righteousness accounted to us. His robes of righteousness put around us, the unrighteous, because of his perfect work. Now, in the Catholic tradition, we are infused with that righteousness. We are made righteous. Well, that would be wonderful if we always acted righteous after that, but what are we going to do because of our sinfulness? Make, one, make ourselves unrighteous just like that? Why do you think they crucify the, the Lord over and over and over again? So this, this idea separates these two major strains of thoughts. We are accounted righteousness because Christ was righteous and he died in our place so that we would have his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin, right? So that we would have the righteousness of God in Christ accounted to us. So that's what is being done here. In the servant's work, he makes many justified accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There's no way we can be made righteous, have righteousness accounted to us if he does not bear our iniquities. And that's what this whole servant song has been about, isn't it? The one servant that God sends bears the sins of his people so that we don't have to. Well, we could say more, but we need to press on. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So this is that picture, and yours may be worded different with strong and many or, or innumerable. There may be different words for you, but it's the picture of the, the general coming back into camp from the battle that he's victorious over, all of the, the conquest coming behind him and him bringing the spoils of war and dividing it among the, the soldiers that went with him, presenting it to the king. It's that kind of an idea. This is the victorious one. So all the work that he has accomplished, living the perfect life, dying the perfect death, being raised again, is going to lead to his exaltation. And this is that picture of him returning with us as his children. The sheep that were wandering now coming in as his children. And we receive our portion, which is his righteousness, so that we are justified by faith in him and not in ourselves. And we come to these next verses, which are a summary, but they're also poetically powerful, are they not? Why can he do this? Why is he the victor? Why does he have spoils? Because he poured out his soul to death. We've seen that several times. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of Many, third time in these verses, we see that little word, many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now look at how this is put together. All this happens because he, that is the servant, poured out his soul to death. He died. He did it himself. He poured out his own soul, and it was the will of the Father that he did that. Look at the two lines later. Yet he bore the sin of many. 
So in his dying, he bore the sin of many. We're going to talk about who that many is. He bore the sin of many. Now look at the second line. He was numbered with the transgressors. And the last line, he makes intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that beautiful? He's numbered among them so that our sins are forgiven. And now his death is died for us. The wrath he suffered is our wrath that he suffers. And we are the transgressors that he was numbered with. What a glorious picture of substitutionary atonement right before us in this verse. One writer says this, there was no one to step into the gap between the rebels and their destruction, so the servant did it with his own blood. He quotes Hebrews 9, which we'll look at. Thus, as noted above in his commentary, he's summarizing what this uh, John Oswald has put in his commentary. The writer wants to remove any doubt from the reader's mind. The servant will be exalted to the highest heaven. That's where we started, right? Isaiah 52, 13. Not because he was humiliated, although he was. Not because he suffered unjustly, although he did. Not because he did it voluntarily, although he did, but because it was all in order to carry the sin of the world away to permit God's children to come home to him. He is exalted because he fulfilled God's purposes for his ministry, and that purpose was redemption. That's where we end up. I might quibble with some of Oswald's words in the middle, but he's bringing us the truth, right? He's bringing us the truth that God's will was to redeem a people for himself and he did it through the suffering servant who willingly obeyed, setting down his life for those that will come to faith. That's the picture of the gospel. People who have not yet come to Christ don't need to understand all of this depth yet. But those of you who have come to Christ, this should be etched into your eyelids because this is the truth. Sin is horrible. Sin is ugly. Sin separates us from God. The only thing that could have ever stood in our place was the perfection of God himself. So let me tell you today, if you're here and you are still thinking that you're pretty good, you know, I, I used to be like this. I was a horrible person, but I'm a lot better now. I don't kick the dog except on Sundays. I'm a lot better than I used to be. If you're still under that kind of thinking, this text condemns you because this tells you that that sin and all the sin that you committed took the death of the perfectly righteous one who was God in order to redeem a people for himself. And how arrogant of you to think you can stand before God and think you accomplished something that no one else but Jesus could accomplish. It is only through Christ that you receive eternal life. It is turning away from your sin and turning to the one who died, to the one who satisfied the wrath of God, to the one who God sent and God's will, his purposes were, were manifest in his hand. That's the one that we turn to. And any of us that hold on to our own righteousness do not understand our sin enough to claim to be saved. So today's the day. Today's the day that you turn to this servant. And if you're not convinced yet, you need to hear what the New Testament says about these. Because in the New Testament, we see this language shown to us so clearly. Jesus says in, in um, Luke twenty two thirty seven, 37, 
These are his words. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And what scripture is it? And he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12, the last phrase. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus himself says this is about him. Jesus himself says it's going to be fulfilled. And he's saying going, future tense here, as he's speaking before his crucifixion. The early church believed this as well, that it was the Father's good pleasure to do this. It was not just some, some rogue person who decided, I'm going to come up with this way. It was the Holy One offering the Holy One for the unholy. And the church understood that. The early church gathered together rejoicing after Peter and John were freed from prison. They quote Psalm 2 about all the, all the nations rising up against God. And then they, they say this, for, they're praying thanks to God. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed with Harris and, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the sinful men are doing what the holy God predestined to take place. And Isaiah told us hundreds of years before that would take place. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, for truly in this city they were gathered together, Pontius Pilate, or gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Pontius Pilate, no, I read the wrong one earlier. Both Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was clear in multiple places that they believed this is God's sovereign pleasure, and it was not just the mere whims or capriciousness of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many brothers. There is a people for whom Christ died. There is a people that God is redeeming through Christ. There is a people that are elect that the son will not lose. And the New Testament affirms this in multiple places. He was the firstborn among many brothers, not enemies. Listen, you're either a child of God, a brother of Jesus, or you're an enemy of God in Christ. There's no middle ground. There's no soft spot. Our world is full of soft spots unless I don't like the soft spot. Then I don't, then I don't approve of that. But we're all full of this. I'm even reading this in in. In publications that I used to trust, I'm reading language now that's creeping in that's like, well, it says this, but isn't this also true? As if we're negating something instead of expanding something. It's getting crazy. You need to be discerning. Everything Luke said this morning, ditto. We need to be discerning in this because the scripture is clear and mixes nothing. You're an enemy or you're a son. And if you're a son, you're a brother of Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, we've already referred to this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referred to many, referring to many, but referring to one. So isn't this great? 
Many receive salvation, but the promise from Abraham is only to one. It's not to many. The one who fulfills the promise to Abraham gives life to the many. The great tradition of scripture and understanding what happened. Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to be served and to give his life a ransom for everyone, for many, for many. Hebrews chapter nine, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You hear the thoughts of Isaiah 53. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Are you eagerly awaiting for him today? Have you received the blessings of eternal life? Do you see Jesus more clearly today than you saw him yesterday? Are you becoming more enamored with him so that this world is holding less and less and less hold on you? So that you are looking forward to the day Jesus returns to gather his children into eternal life? Now, this might be a harder thing to understand if you're young. When you're old and gray-haired like me, man, it's getting sweeter every day. I always used to say, I want to see my kids grow up and my grandkids. Well, now I've seen that. And I don't care when he comes back. Not because I've seen it, but because I'm growing tired of fighting sin. I'm growing sick and tired of that. I want to see and savor Jesus forever, face to face, with no death, dying, or suffering. This world is holding less, and it's becoming strangely dim, as the hymn writer says. If that's you, that's a sign that you have entered into this life and you are one of the many for whom Christ died. I want you to, to turn to one passage, Hebrews chapter 2. It's not been long since we were in this, but I want you to see the connections with Hebrew chapter 2 and Isaiah 53. Remember, we're looking at the New Testament's affirmation that this is no um, unnamed servant. It is the suffering servant who is Jesus, who came and lived and died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Look at verse 5. We'll just keep it in context. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world. Now, this is, remember, chapter one is Jesus is better than all kinds of things. Chapter one, two, three, the whole book of Hebrews is trying to convince the people that Jesus is better than everything, than the law, than Moses, than angels. No matter what you could think of, Jesus is better and his covenant is better. That's the whole um, setting of, the, of this book. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speak, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, this is a quote of Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now remember when we looked at this, we saw the transition between Psalm 8 talking about the place of men in the world to how the New Testament is using it fully, the place of Jesus in the world. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, the middle of verse 8, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, when he came as the God-man, lived and died, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, so this is the will of the Father, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. suffering. There's Jesus, there's the servant. For who, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, before we move on, here's that language that you need to let the context give you the definition of. In verse 10, um, let me find the verse here. In verse 9, it ends up, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, the everyone is now defined. Because if Christ tasted death for everyone, then everyone would be saved. And we know everyone is not saved. It's a clear teaching of scripture. So the everyone is now going to be uh, defined for us. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, there's one qualification of those, uh, those who are saved, right? They're being sanctified. And if that's a new word for you, it, it simply means being conformed to the image and likeness of the son. It's, it's growing in Christ's likeness, growing in righteousness, not because we are righteous, but because we are now followers, followers of Christ and obeying his word causes us to live in such a way that pleases the Lord because he sees us through his son. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, not enemies, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my, I will tell of your name, that is the servant Jesus, telling of the Lord's name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, he's quoting these Old Testament texts saying, this is true of him. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. There's our Isaiah passage. He will see his offspring, already quoted in Isaiah chapter 8. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh with, and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, who are the offspring of Abraham? We are. 
He is the seed, and we get all of those blessings. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. The life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ for the life of sinners. Suffering the wrath of God, dying in our place. All from Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came. And the New Testament looking back at that and saying, everything we're telling to you, Isaiah said. The glorious truth of the mind and wisdom of God. And when we come before the Lord's table, as we're about to do, this idea of Christ dying for the many is in our minds, isn't it? Because in the Gospels, when we learn about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, we are told And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke, broke it and gave to them and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So in the order of the Passover feast, he's taking the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he's saying, this is about me, and I've shed my blood for many. If you're part of the many this morning, if you're part of those who claim Christ, you have, you have renounced your sin, turned from it, repented from it, and trusted in Christ, and you are trusting in him for your righteousness, not yourself. Not anything in you, but everything in him. And you're trusting in Christ. This is the supper for you. Because this is where we come and we both remember everything we've just talked about. We feed upon those truths because they encourage us, do they not? I mean, the, the fact that we are sinners and we're heading to glory with Jesus should encourage us beyond anything that we could possibly imagine in this world. So when we consider how that was done and what that cost, it brings us sorrow that our sin cost the life of, of the Son, but it also brings us joy that the Father willingly sent the Son and the Son willingly went so that he could redeem his people. We're feeding on those truths because that sends us out of this place into the world knowing that we're blood-bought with a mission and even if they kill us when we witness, we get to be be with him. And we remember that every time we take the Lord's Supper. But it's not merely looking backward, is it? It's also looking forward because he's promised to come again and to take us to that place where we receive our inheritance, which in its most full and complete understanding, our inheritance is Jesus himself, the one who gave himself for us, the one who's standing as a lamb as if slain. He is the one that we worship forever face to face. 
And so we're looking forward to that day. In the meantime, it is the gospel that drives us forward. It's our message. It's our method. It is, it is the words that are on our lip and, the, and what drives our life. It's everything that encourages us to crucify sin and pursue Christ because Christ came and died for us. And so it's a time spiritually of feeding. It's a memorial, yes, it's a remembrance, but it's much more than that. It is a spiritual feeding on the truths of the gospel to propel us out to glorify God and be obedient to him as we leave this place. Now, if you're visiting with us or new with us, if you are one of the many, if you are professing Christ and trusting him for your salvation, you are, you are um, welcome to partake of us. If you're one who has not come to Christ yet, if you're one who has not professed Christ of any age, you have not professed Christ, and you are, you are still outside of Christ, and what I'm talking to you about is something you have not experienced yourself, then you should let the cup and the, and the bread pass you by. Because the Bible tells us that in New Testament times, there were people that, were, that went to sleep. They died because they took of the supper in an unworthy manner. There's debate on what that means, but at the very least, it must mean that if you're going to remember and appropriate the life the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ, you should experience that in your life. You should be buried with him and raised to new life with him. So that's the warning for the, for the plate. We take it with joy, do we not? And we take it in community. We take it in fellowship with other believers who are now brothers of Jesus. Now, the way ancestors, by the way, that doesn't leave you out. That's just biblical language to talk about mankind. So the way we're going to partake of this this morning is we, we're going to pass the elements out in silence, and I want you to keep the bread and then keep the cup, and then we'll sing and we'll partake of it all together in that way. So if our servers would come forward, you'll have plenty of time to meditate. This is the great time to make sure that you are, um, you're not harboring sin against the Lord willingly, because you have a sacrifice. You have a sacrifice for that sin. This is the time for you to consider the, and confess sin before the Lord. This is the time to consider if you're at odds with other believers before you take, to leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile. So you have plenty of time to do that as we pass the elements in silence. And then we'll sing and we'll partake together.